0: Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Shure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like
1: you. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts Al John Go and Dave Bossert.
0: It's co-host Al John Go and Dave Bossert, and uh, we
2: are off this week, but we're running a great vault show. And just want to say, we hope you had a very merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas and
2: looking forward to the new year and enjoy this uh vintage show from the vault with Don Hahn skull rock podcast interview time well Al John as I promised at the top of the show uh, we've got an incredible guest Don Hahn who is a film producer who really is credited with producing some of the most successful animated films uh, during the renaissance of Disney animation including Beauty and the Beast which was nominated for an Academy Award in Best Picture the only animated film ever to be nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Picture category he's also produced The Lion King The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, Atlantis Lost Empire so many other films but more importantly he is a film director, an accomplished painter, a musician, and a book author. I mean, he is really a true renaissance man. So let me just welcome Don Hahn to the Skull Rock Podcast. And I'm an I'm an insomniac
1: too, so <laughs>
2: All right, Don, it's so great to have you on the show. I really appreciate this. And I want to I let our audience know first and foremost that uh, today we're only going to talk about Beauty and the Beast. And then great. you're going to be with us next week to talk about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Great. And then the following week to talk about Atlantis, The Lost Empire, because all three of those films are celebrating anniversaries this year. That's crazy. It is nuts, isn't it?
1: It is, but you know we'll uh, we'll do our best, and and uh, you know happy to talk about anything, and really happy to be on with you guys. I've I've listened to your podcast now because all my friends have um, contributed, and it's so great to be actually be on and talking to you. Well,
2: it's great to have you, and uh, I I just I mean. You know, I've said to so many of our guests that we can't possibly cover anybody's career in, you know, like one episode of our, our podcast. And certainly with you, I don't even think we can cover your career in three episodes of our podcast. But I'm glad you brought your camping gear and you're camping out in our green room for the next three weeks so that we can record all these
1: shows. Happy to. Yeah. Happy to talk about uh, any and all of it. And, uh, you know, if we if we run short, we can uh, talk about some recipes I have that I'd like to share. And um, let's we'll just go on to other topics. Fantastic. I uh, honestly, you know, I,
2: I think the one thing I uh, I had I'd sent you a note about uh, we, we changed we exchanged emails and I wanted to start out on Beauty and the Beast at the the really the very beginning Uh, And and talk a little bit behind the scenes of, you know, how this film got off the ground and that it actually started
1: with a a director in London. Am I correct? (laughs) Yeah, it really did. You know, it started uh, during Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, you were working on that film, too. And we were in London uh, finishing up and we had a, a difficult but great time and made a good movie. And so we wanted to keep some of the people together on that film. And I got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was kind of our studio boss at that time, Um and he said, "You know, we'd like you to try uh, Beauty and the Beast." And, i you know, I, I didn't think about it too much because I needed a job. But aside from that, I think the um, the main thing about Beauty and the Beast was it was the last of the red hot fairy tales. You know, there was Cinderella, there was Sleeping Beauty, and Beauty and the Beast was kind of on the on the bookshelf, was you know, right next to those. So. Uh, At first, we dove in with, uh, we were gonna get Richard Williams to do it, the great Richard Williams, uh, the animator who directed the animation on The Thief and the Cobbler and, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, we asked Bob Zemeckis if he wanted to do it. And Richard Williams was the one who suggested Richard Purdom. Richard Purdom was a uh, protege of Richard Williams, but much more than that. He had his own studio in London and was uh, really kind of a brilliant animator, uh, director. And his wife, uh, Jill Thomas, was a producer. And as a team, they made a lot of sense to come in and try something new. And we had had some luck in London with the talent over there. Um, so we we pulled Richard into our uh, our web. And uh, started working on the film in London, which is a lot of people don't know. But we uh, actually brought some people over from L.A. like Andrea Stasia and Tom Cito and Glenn Keane. And uh, it became a really, uh, Gene Gilmore, a really intense time for us to, um, you know, start out in the movie.
2: Yeah. And, uh, that, that group, uh, actually got, uh, storyboards together in a story reel, if I recall correctly. I mean, there was, there was some sort of presentation
1: that, that, uh, culminated, uh, before there was a change in course. Yeah, they really did. Um, there, I mean, there was even an earlier groups in that with people like, um, oh, Daryl Rooney and, uh, you know, several people in Los Angeles and, and, um, Mel Shaw was always a part of that group. Mel, uh, for those of you who don't know was part of Bambi and had worked with Walt Disney way, way back, partly because he was a brilliant artist, but also because he was a great polo player and Walt needed him for his polo team. Um, but more on that in the next episode, uh, (laughs) horsing around at Disney. But, um, that group in London put together maybe 20 minutes, 22 minutes, uh, uh, gosh of of fully uh recorded orchestrated beautiful stuff and um it, it, and i i suppose the the general consensus was it was working but it was a little bit uh serious, a little bit European, a little bit like the Jean Cocteau version of Beauty and the Beast, yeah. um, and wasn't quite firing off. And we actually, Richard Kirtam and I brought it to Florida at the same time that Little Mermaid was coming out. Um, I think it was the same week as the Little Mermaid press junket. And um, we sat in a room of executives uh, and and full of flop sweat. Uh, we were not the executives. And uh, Roy Disney was there, Peter Schneider, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and we played it and when the lights came up i remember vividly the uh, uh jeffrey saying you know it's time to fish or cut bait and those are you know you can look up that term but it just basically means we're done and um you know i think that was a, a tough thing to hear but it just wasn't firing off particularly in light of the little mermaid which was firing off and was a huge hit Uh, for all of its, um, you know, for the press and for everybody that was reacting to it. Part of that was uh, John Musker, Ron Clements, the great people who wrote and conceived it. Part of it was um, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, who wrote the songs for it. So it was just vibrant and alive and getting this great reaction. And Beauty and the Beast was anything but that. So we got back on the airplane and consumed a fair amount of in-flight beverages on our way back to London, Um, and uh, and yet we had... Uh, planned this trip to the Loire Valley in France. Now, those of you who don't know the Loire Valley in France, um, you can Google that right now, but it's the place for chateaus in France. And uh, we had planned a research trip. So even though our, our movie was not shelved, but was certainly set back um, and uh, in a bad way, we decided to go anyway. So we went on our trip to the Loire Valley uh, Beauty and the Beast,
2: uh, that version of it, like the Little Mermaid coming out was like bright and colorful and full of energy. Uh, and that early version, uh, as I recall,
1: of Beauty and the Beast was kind of on the dark side, wasn't it? It was a little bit. And, I, you know, it's nobody's fault, particularly uh, Richard Perdom again is a really brilliant guy. Um, But Disney animation was kind of finding its feet again after years and years. And so the idea of doing uh, Beauty and the Beast, you had to kind of search because the second act of that story is very dark. Um, you know, a, a father goes to a castle and picks a rose out of the beast's garden. And the beast says, well, now that you've picked a rose, bring me your firstborn daughter, which is a, not a common thing we hear these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it becomes a really uh, dark kind of uh almost inappropriate story. And so we had to throw it out. And the nice thing is the history of Walt Disney storytelling from Walt himself was to really throw things out and challenge things and not be too married to the core story of say jungle book or Cinderella or whatever. And so we felt somewhat empowered by that. um, Particularly when we came back and started working with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, we felt like, okay, now we have license to, um, you know, really throw it up in the air and create some kind of Disney uh, magic with it all. And so the objects, uh, the clock teapot candelabra type objects um, were very serious in the earlier kind of London version. And they turned into singing and dancing and, and you know, characters that were rooting for Belle and the Beast to get together. And of course, that's what made the story work is, is your, not only did the beast want to break the spell, but all the objects had a vested interest in the spell and they had to break the spell too. And so now everybody's rooting interests are lined up and yeah. everybody has the same kind of goal in the movie.
2: Did, um, when, when did Howard and, and Alan, uh, get involved with the
1: project? Uh, was, was it after that initial screening in Florida? Yeah, yeah, it was right after that initial screening. And I think the aftermath of that is, you know, we we have um Howard and Allen. Uh they were working on um Aladdin at the time. And Aladdin was having his story problems. And so lucky for us, um, Aladdin went into some story L kind of uh rewrites. And so Howard and Allen were free and um, uh, thanks to Jeffrey Katzenberg and several different people. we kind of talked Howard into, well, you're not doing much. And Beauty and the Beast is sitting right here. Why don't you jump in and help out on that show? And, and they did. I think Howard really took to it. He saw it a little bit as the King and I, you know, two people from different worlds. Um, and, and you have to remember Howard was just a, a student of musical theater. So he could, he could look at a part of the movie or a song or a moment and just say, you know, this is a lot like the dancing King and I, this is a lot like this character in funny thing happened on the way to the forum. He could quote those things, chapter and verse and really help frame some directions to try. And, um, you know, it was one of his many gifts.
2: Was that, uh, was the ballroom sequence uh, essentially inspired by uh, the, the King and I dancing? Yeah 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 it really
1: was you know it's it's in a fairy tale or in a musical um characters rarely have uh sexual encounters uh but they dance and so the uh, the idea of consummating a romance is usually done in a dance whether it's cinderella or sleepy beauty or whatever and those dances become very very central then to the bonding of those characters so just like in um King and I, uh, certainly the look and feel of that big ballroom and the big dress and everything else is inspired by uh, The King and I. Hmm.
2: Did um, And I'm imagining uh, Dick Purden, Purden, uh, exited uh, early on uh, after that screening, didn't he? Or uh, did, it, it was he kind did. of a ritual
1: thing, wasn't it? He he kind it, of felt it really was. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, this happens on movies where people don't quite connect with the material for whatever reason. And I think he connected with it, but was taking it in a direction that didn't feel uh, particularly uh, Disney, whatever the heck that is. Yeah. Um, so he worked with us for a while, worked with Howard for a while up in upstate New York where Howard lived, um, and then and then just said, you know, I'm going to step back because it's not quite the movie I would make. And as a gentleman, as he is, he, he and his wife, Jill just stepped back and said, we're going to head back to London. Um, they did. And we were left without a director and we had to do kind of a battlefield promotion. And, um, we looked around the studio and found two young story guys in their twenties. Um, And and said, listen, why don't you guys try this? (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, you can be acting directors until we find somebody to really direct this movie. And that was Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale, who ended up directing it and, uh, and many other fine movies. They're brilliant directors.
2: Yeah, we we had uh, Kirk on uh, on the show yeah. a couple of months ago, uh, and it was just terrific to hear his perspective on on,
1: on all of the those early days. Um, uh, yeah, it's very know, funny but, because we you know. he got summoned with all of us to New York, and I was in New York already, and. You know, he said, well, you you have to be in New York tomorrow and uh, tomorrow morning and meet us in the boardroom of the Walt Disney Company, which is this giant, almost cartoon proportion boardroom. And all of us animators sitting around like the country cousins and um, the executives (laughs) walked in and were like, good morning, Mr. Katzenberg. Um, But it was good. You know, everybody was on the same page. Everybody wanted to make progress and uh, and dove into the new movie with the promise of uh, you know, making a better movie
2: and uh what were some of the hurdles early on uh once once kirk and gary got on board and howard and alan were already moving along on songs uh was, was it a, a true collaboration in your mind with uh everybody uh i mean you know howard was such a a genius when it came to structuring a, a story with songs because it, yeah. it, it, the the songs moved the, the the stories uh uh along uh didn't it wasn't like there was a song inserted for no p- apparent reason other than to have right. a song it was a song that was part of the moving the story forward
1: yeah exactly and um a lot of it was uh I mean, the early days of putting it together, we of course listened to Howard and Allen because they were just off of many hits, including Little Shop of Horrors and Mermaid and whatever. Um, But you have to remember, we also had a story team, uh, not only our directors, but everybody on our story team then is now a director or has led a film in Hollywood. So you have Roger Allers who went on to direct Lion King. You have Brenda Chapman who went on to direct, um, you know, a Pixar film. And you have Chris Sanders who went on to direct- Brave, Brave, thank you. Chris Sanders, who directed Lilo and Stitch and uh, the Dragon movie at um, DreamWorks. You know, so these tremendous talents who at the time were story artists. Um, So you had a lot of a lot of power in the engine room on that particular show. And, and uh, you know, again, uh, you you
2: you had one version with the Purdoms that got torn down, uh, and you're putting up another version. But there was still some uh, uh, various uh, bits and and parts of that sequences that were struggles, weren't there?
1: Yeah, there sure were. I mean, some of the. Uh, the original ideas like the wolf chase, like uh, Bell escaping from the castle and being tracked down by wolves and saved by the beast. That was um, saved in large part from the early Pyrdom version. Um, And then there were a lot of other uh, moments where you're just kind of fumbling through the forest without a flashlight and barefoot, hoping that you can find the path to get back on track to make your movie work. So having said that there's things like the opening number was actually storyboarded and written. It wasn't written out like a, like a song, but it was storyboarded by Bernie Mattinson, as I recall. And, um, and then we showed that to Howard now and, and they musicalized what, what was Bell going shopping, getting a loaf of bread, meeting guests on and made it into this amazing number. Um, the same with be our guest. you know, it was originally sung to uh, Maurice, to Belle's father. And um, it, it was great, it was beautifully storyboarded and Maurice was sitting at the table being served dinner. And and uh, during a story meeting, Bruce Woodside, one of our story guys uh, said, you know, I think we're singing this to the wrong guy. And we all laughed and said, ha, ha, no, no, no. And he was right. Uh, why weren't we singing Be Our Guest to Belle, the uh, you know protagonist in this story? So we had a recording session really quickly and changed all of our pronouns and uh, and turned it into um, a song for Belle and reanimated a lot of that, too. So and that turned into a, a lot spe- of those. Yeah, that turned into a spectacular sequence. The, the it B- really S- did. S- you know, we yeah, we were playing with computer graphics a little at the time. It was only 1990, 1991. Um, so, you know, between that and the ballroom, there were little bits of computer graphics that allowed us to have more production values, but, um, there's always bumps and, and grinds like that on a film, you know, there's never, a, a smooth pathway. And if there is, there's probably something wrong with the film, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I, you uh, know,
2: I, I mean, when you, when you say that it's, it's so true about every single picture that yeah. you or I have been involved with, uh, over the decades, uh, you, you are going along thinking everything's fine and then you hit a speed bump. Uh, and something's not working, you know, you, you, you're trying to believe it's working, but it really isn't working. And you know, those fresh eyes that come in
1: with executives saying, Hey, that's not working, you know, or you got to change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you end up really relying on those. So we were lucky. We had good executives. We had, uh, the best situation is an executive who is open and understands that something's wrong, but doesn't necessarily know or want to fix it. Um, so we had a lot of really good input from our executive team. Great story people with uh, Peter Schneider, Tom Schumacher, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Michael Eisner was a good story guy. Uh, and it's not that we took his notes literally all the time, but he would have a good eye uh, towards what was broken mm-hmm. and what wasn't firing off. And and that's what you need when you're so close to a film or a painting, by the way, or a poem or a song. Um to back away after a while and just say, boy, I don't know where I am. Uh, somebody help me.
2: You know, you, you mentioned Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher. Both of those guys uh, came from a theater background. So they really understood uh, theater or musical theater. Um, and, and what, what kind of impact do you think that had uh,
1: in those early years when those guys were first coming in? Well, looking back on, it, I think it had a, a really big impact. I, uh, most of us, uh, the studio came from an animation background or some sort of art background uh, i came from a music background so i i fit in pretty easily with the musicals and producing musicals um, but a lot of times if you come from purely an animation background you may not have the story chops or the musical chops to be able to uh, contribute on a level and so to have to have executives and and many people who came from the theater uh, working on these movies, it it provided a comfortable room for people to be in. you know, uh, Peter Schneider was the, uh, he was like the company manager on little shop of horrors in New York. So he's like a little kid, Peter running around backstage with Howard Ashman writing those songs. And then years later he becomes an executive at animation. So, uh, that background in theater is so American and so entertaining and so much about storytelling. Um, That it was incredibly helpful and and really educational because I'm not sure we, meaning Disney animators, um, were that well versed in musical storytelling before that point.
2: Yeah, no, and I I agree. I mean, there certainly was a little bit of friction at the studio with the animation, with some of the people in in animation and all of these theater folks coming in. I mean, I, 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 you know, I kind of recall (laughs) that, you know, and and that's kind of a natural thing because there was so much change going on at that point that there were some people who were just getting their, you know, they were getting paranoid and, you know, they were, they were, you know, trying to defend their position, if you will.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, there, the other thing that was happening is it was a handoff between the old generation that started out with Walt Disney, mm-hmm. um, Frank Thomas, Ward Kimball, Lolly Johnson, uh, Barry Larson, all those guys and girls. And uh, a new generation. And then all of a sudden, all those people retired. So you look around, you go, Hey, where's everybody and all of a sudden everyone's in their 20s and 30s um hungry to prove that they could make a movie as good as that uh, older generation whether we did or not is is up to you to decide but uh, i think there was an ambition to do that and then um you know the the idea of we were just you know, pushed off a lot at one point because the priority for the studio was to start a live action movie business. Um, So to make room for that, we were uh, over on Flower Street in Glendale, opposite Imagineering, which was pretty cool, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, it, 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 it was a chance for us to sink or swim. And I think we swam finally, but through many bumps. And You know, animators, and I include myself in this statement, are suspicious of anyone new that comes into the business, are critical (laughs) of any executive of any sort, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. Um, it's very rare to have an executive that is, um, you know, respected in some way. Uh, but I have to say Peter Schneider, who was really our boss after a while, I've learned to really appreciate all he brought to it in terms of honesty and, um, and, uh, musical theater, um, same for Jeffrey Katzenberg, really they're straight shooters sometimes to the point where you don't want to hear what they have to say. Cause they're being <laughs> honest about it, but, um, we all had to grow up, had to grow
2: up really fast. Now, you you said we removed off the studio a lot. I like to say kicked off the studio. (laughs) Uh, and, and, you know, I, I say that laughingly because uh, it, it was kind of true. I think when the new management came in, uh, they had no clue about animation whatsoever. So the natural thing to do was either shut it down, which they weren't going to be able to do because of our savior, Roy E. Disney. Uh, but uh, but moving us off the studio a lot and focusing on on building that that live action. um Uh, studio was was certainly uh, their big priority at that moment. I mean, you know, they had to get Cabin Boy done, you know. (laughs) Cabin Boy, they had to get Bette Midler in there.
1: Um, And, and, you know, they were successful at it because the live action studio was a, a mixed bag. There were great films like splash and that but um even though it might have been a priority for the studio under ron miller it wasn't a a huge uh, disney i felt like was never part of hollywood Uh, right Right. and to me that's a blessing because who wants to be part of hollywood but um i think the the idea that uh you could grow movies and have an active movie division as katzenberg and eisner and wells did uh at paramount right uh was exciting on that level but it did mean we were out on the street. Um, I And I was in the middle of all that because I would go around looking for a new place for us. We almost ended up over by um, Cadel Sol, a beautiful restaurant in North Hollywood, in a little office building. And I'm mm-hmm. glad we didn't take it, but we did plans and everything there. Uh, we almost ended up in the Hewlett Packard building in North Hollywood because mm-hmm. um, television animation was there. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's these cheesy old warehouses by Imagineering on Flower Street. And we really went there for the access to Imagineering mm-hmm. and their uh, commissary. Uh, you know, no joke it's just that the infrastructure was there the support mechanism the wisdom of a lot of their imagineers and we felt like that was a really great place to go so man we packed up and moved
2: I you know I'm I'm actually so glad that we moved over to flower street when we did Me too. because I was a morning person and I would
1: go over to that commissary and that's where I met Claude Coates uh, yeah, the story and, you tell about Claude Coates and sitting down and having breakfast with him frequently is amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah no, I, and and that that to me was was like you know and and I and I was at the beginning of my career and he was at the tail end of this fifty plus year career. I mean, it was like when I met him, he was at the company for like fifty three years, and he was in the commissary. You know, I mean, when I would go like two two or three times a week, I'd run into him in the commissary. And and he'd always have he'd always be getting a
1: donut and black coffee. Oh man, uh, that's yeah. a man after my own taste. And,
2: and and you know, just an incredibly gracious, nice, approachable individual. And a, as a lot of the folks over at Imagineering War, I think they they were kind of very welcoming to us and and yeah. allowing us to participate in their Halloween uh, 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 parties that they did every year. On you know, <laughs> I, I know some of them went off uh, off the rails because of <laughs> the police calls. Because were of, a, because You're of some a, them. A, because. Of a few people in animation, yes, but. there was law enforcement involved. Yeah, <laughs> but but for the most part, they were uh,
1: you know the, they were pretty gracious about it all. <laughs> well, but I, I think I, all you know. the all the guys from that generation were gracious. Uh, the men and women who grew up with <clears throat> Walt Disney were really generous with their training, and guys like Mark Davis and Eric Larson, Frank and Ollie. Um, you know, so many of the people of that generation really were generous to us. And I think that's now that uh, I'm elderly, uh, we're all elderly getting to an age where we can give back. Like I I get excited about the idea of giving back and uh, whether it's teaching or writing or whatever, trying to share some of that knowledge back with uh, uh, upcoming generations.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, you know, going going back to Beauty and the Beast when when we were in that uh, one-story warehouse building, uh, it, it, it actually felt pretty good. I mean, there was there was a camaraderie in there, there was a family atmosphere in there because it was sort of this makeshift uh, office space with you know cubicles being moved here and there and popped up uh, you know wherever we could stuff somebody at the peak of production. When you look back on on the production was there any period that was really kind of a like a tough tough moment you know like like getting the film done kind of moment because I I think a lot of us who had worked on a number of pictures prior to that were sort of used to there being this you know fire drill at the end you know to get the movie finished and a lot of the new people who were coming into production management from theater and things like that were, were like the blood was draining out of their heads like oh my gosh we're never gonna <laughs> get this
1: movie done you know yeah <laughs> well it's true it's it, uh, every movie's that way which you said a while back It's every movie's difficult and chaotic and if it's not there's something wrong um the, the movie right before us *Rescuers down under is a really important movie because it was one of the first if not the first digital movies in hollywood and they had an impossible task of inventing a digital pipeline while they were making the movie. And Kathleen Gavin, who was the uh, producer on that film at one point just said, you know, it it can't get done. We look at on paper and look at all the schedules. There's no plausible way that that movie can get done, but we're not going to tell anybody that it can't get done. And it got done. And the, um, the kind of, um, technology that was forged in that movie allowed beauty and the beast and blind King and Aladdin and others to take off after that. Um, Um, And and so the folks from theater learned fast and, and I got to say, you know, we, meaning like I started in Disney animation in 1976 and I had been around for a while. I learned fast. I certainly didn't know anything about um, so many of the aspects of you know, production management and that that we had to do. And it was it was moving. So like every movie, Beauty and the Beast, uh, we ran out of money at the end. The studio had a particularly bad year on the stock market. Uh, I remember putting scenes, stacks of drawings on the table in the conference room uh, in Airway, which was our building that we had. And, and sitting there with the director saying, okay, the Beast has three stripes on his face. We can only afford two. Which two stripes do you want? And they would literally sit there and we finally got it down. Well, let's just do one stripe. And so we simplified. We would say, here's a here's a scene that has a shadow. Does it need a shadow? Here the beast walks through water in this scene. Can we take the water out? So we were really doing, and you know this, Dave, as well as anybody, that yeah. the simplification pass of trying to keep sure. um the movie doable. Uh and so it got down to the end and it was really simple. Uh but it didn't hurt the movie. And the, I mean, the the, the person I gave the most time to was Glenn Keane because he was animating Belle and the Beast, the Beast transformation, Belle and the Beast kissing, and, mm-hmm. and that crucial kind of conclusion to the movie. Um, if you were doing a third string beer mug or something, you didn't get a lot of time. You know, you had to yeah. turn it out. And we were so, uh, this is telling tales out of school, but we were so out of time that the very last scene, which is Belle and the Beast dancing in the ballroom, um, we didn't have time to animate it. So I checked the scene out of the archives uh, from Sleeping Beauty and it's the scene of Aurora dancing with the prince yeah. when her dress is getting turned pink and blue and Vera lanfer our kind of key cleanup head, uh, changed it into the bell and you know the beast dancing in the ballroom. So if you put it side by side, uh, Sleeping Beauty and Beauty and the Beast, that final scene, it's the same animation uh, because we couldn't afford to finish the animation in a fresh way. So so somebody somebody, saying that that's all right. But somebody actually uh,
2: posted something uh, on the Internet. Uh, It's got to be within the last couple of months. I saw a little YouTube video where they were putting some classic scenes next to some more contemporary scenes. And Uh, it was like, did you see that? Yeah, I thought that was great and, and and it's like oh my god you know like the person like the sense I got was that somebody was was there saying I've got you I nailed you guys I I found out what you've been doing and the reality was that in every one of our pictures we were reusing material from all kinds of films I can't tell you just being in, in the special effects department how much uh, we reused the snow and rain that was shot for Bambi back in yeah. nineteen thirty nine forty. Uh we were reusing that
1: in Pocahontas, Little Mermaid. We, I mean, you know, it was like you know, well, it's a business. You know, it's a business. Why put money into things that you have sitting on the shelf already? And the Wooly Reitherman was the best at this. He would on Fox and the Hound. He would say, um, "We need some dogs at the very beginning, uh, chasing uh, our lead characters. Go get the Bambi dogs." And so I go down and get these dogs running around from Bambi. And sure enough, we'd put them in the movie, and they worked just fine. And and there's nothing wrong with that, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I think the more we can um, reuse and economize. The more we can put more dollars in entertainment into places that really need it, and um, and that's what it's about. That's what producing's is about is trying to put yeah. your your uh, efforts into places that make a difference.
2: Yeah, and, and and you know something, Walt was a master at repurposing animation. I mean, he did it through the '30s and into the '40s and even into the '50s with television. They were yeah. constantly reusing and reworking. I mean, they reused material from Snow White to do war bond, uh, commercials and, and trailers for the theaters, uh, uh, during the forties, you know, yep, so there, there was, you know, you grab what you can in order to get the production done. Um, yeah, exactly and, and, so it and I was going to say the movie got done, uh,
1: that that's the, the magnificent thing about it. Yeah, nobody walked out of the theater. You know, that's that's the kind of crucial thing is if you're emotionally engaged in the story, how you got there, which is usually chaotic and full of blood, sweat and tears, doesn't matter as much as how invested you are in the story. And if you're invested in the story and you have suspended your disbelief to believe that this beast and this girl can fall in love, you're not going to care you know, that the, that the uh, magic effects were animated by Ted Kiersey with a grease pencil. You're not going to care. Although it's <laughs> it's brilliant artistry, you shouldn't care. And that's the paradox of animation is you spend all this time and money into making people forget that you spent all this time and money. Yeah, no, it's very true. I I have a vivid
2: memory of uh, uh, coming into the office on Flower Street. I think it must have been the Monday after opening weekend of Beauty and the Beast, uh, because there was this incredible bouquet of uh, roses. It must have been like three dozen. Do you remember yeah, that? So sitting I on do. sitting on the receptionist's uh, uh 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 sort of counter in in front of her desk. Uh I, I remember walking in and, and seeing that and, it, and apparently I think it was Jeffrey sending that over to to the yeah. crew. Uh because it was yeah. a, it was a massive opening weekend and and everybody at that point it was like a sigh of relief because everybody knew this was a hit.
1: It really was. And, uh, you know, I think it's easy to say sometimes that, uh, oh, the executives didn't care about animation or whatever. But, you know, they even when Black Cauldron came out, they threw us a big party. They screened it at the Academy. They took us to Chasen's for Chile. Uh, when Beauty the Beast came out, they ran the most spectacular um, Academy Awards uh kind of campaign i guess would mm-hmm. be the word for it yeah. that included uh you know a museum show at the whitney in new york and a screening at the new york film festival which had never been done before of an incomplete version of the film mainly to educate the audience because nobody knew what you know an animation unfinished movie looked like and um you know just with a lot of very clever clever marketing and deliberate kind of uh, putting the movie out there uh, it really helped not only to make the movie successful uh, or at least get people to the theater, um, but eventually also to have the Academy acknowledge it for the first time, which is something Walt Disney didn't even get. So we were pretty uh, humbled by all that, I think is the word.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think it, it's interesting because uh, it was really on that picture that the reports were coming back to the studio that the theater owners were, were filling up evening shows. Uh, yeah. For for Beauty and the Beast and and Al John, if I'm correct, I think you 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 took a date. Was it, was it your wife or oh, or, uh, no, or, or was what? it was it pre wife? It was pre. Uh, uh,
0: the, it was a pre wife date movie. And so thank you, <laughs> Don, for that. Uh We had <laughs> a great time. Yeah, thank thank you. We had a great time. But I will say that when my wife and I were dating, unbeknownst to us, her favorite movie was Beauty and the Beast, and and I was too. So we we had our back in the day. Our our chat room handles were. Bell loves the beast and the beast loves Bell. So there you go. That's right. Yeah. And I am the beast. Uh, Clearly I am the beast. Clearly.
1: (laughs) Thank God you have no picture going along with this. That's that's uh, right. That's right. It's It's true. Unrefined. Unrefined. (laughs) Unrefined. That's me.
2: (laughs) But, uh, so, you know, but, but this, you know, it was so amazing to, to hear those reports coming back that the, the evening theaters were, the showings were filling up with people and, and it was, it was dates. It was, it was, it was people yeah. going out on date night, uh, to see this movie. And that, that really, were, were, I think was a big boost for, for a lot of folks on the
1: crew. Yeah. It really was because a few years earlier, you could not dream of a Disney animated film making more than a few, you know, maybe 10 or 20 million dollars. And those were welcome dollars. There's nothing wrong with that. Um and certainly, movies like *101 Dalmatians* and *Snow White*—they're all-time blockbusters, still on the blockbuster list. Um, but not the contemporary movies so much. So when these movies were seen by a general audience, and a *Little Mermaid* kind of broke the ice on that, and, and before that, *Roger Rabbit* broke the ice on that. It reminded people how much they loved animation, and um, you know, so I think from Roger to uh, Mermaid to Beauty to you know Aladdin and Lion King. Rescurers down under all those films were really a build on each other's in terms of the excitement about the next feature coming up um and and uh, the studio was in top form it wasn't just the animation studio it was the marketing department it was the design of the posters it was the TV campaigns it was a, a really a group effort. And the other thing that was happening at the same time was the international box office was growing. Um, we forget that there was no international box office back then. You might get, you know, $13 from some uh, theater in Guatemala, but it wasn't like it is now where the largest portion of box office does come from international. So people like Mark Serati and Dick Cook were out there in distribution, um, really pounding the pavement around the world and trying to use... This and movies like it to um, kind of open up doors for international box office for Disney. Yeah.
2: And, and, and you know, this film was was huge through the holidays. And uh, and then on January 30th of 1992, it, it broke 100 million dollars at the domestic box office. 100 million dollars that was the first animated film to break 100 million dollars at the box office i mean little mermaid came close with i think it did like 89 million but uh i mean this is decisive i mean it crossed over the 100 million dollar mark in 1992 you know. and i mean just you know that that had to have been i i know from being in the trenches at the studio that was exciting you know, because that it was really like, was. people loved the movie,
1: you know, and animation was back. Yeah. And again, we stood on the shoulders of the uh, movies like Little Mermaid that came before us. We were afraid of going after Little Mermaid because it was so good and so tight uh, that we thought, well, if we can just kind of uh, get up to that level in terms of the quality of what we're doing, then maybe we'll be OK. So when it exceeded that, it was uh unbelievable. And it's a real group effort. You know, that's the other funny thing about animation uh, that I love actually is you can't say, Oh, that's, that's Don Hans movie, or that's uh, you know, it it really is a team effort. And so when you have a success like that, you're not just pointing at a director saying, isn't that director a savant? Oh my God, I wish I knew him. It's not that way at all. In animation, you have a group of guys and girls who are collaborating and uh, without any particular one of those people uh be they colorists or uh painters or or animators or whatever you would not have a movie and uh it's one of the collegial things communities that i love about animation uh more than anything
0: yeah no absolutely I, it, I, it, yeah go ahead i've got a question so when the when the film takes its you know, kind of final shape, is there a test screening that happens outside of the company where maybe the, the PR firm or, you know, I know Disney handles their PR, you know, internally, but um do, the, do the, you guys do a, a press screening or test screening for people? And then do they come out going, this is amazing. Like I didn't feel like it was a children's film because it really, it hit so many different, you know, uh check so many different boxes for people and emotions and fun and joy and, and the music. I mean, did that happen? Um, and if it did yeah. happen, what did you need? Did you need to change anything at all before it was released to the general public?
1: Well, it does happen. And it it goes back to Walt Disney's day, too, because in the you know 50s and 60s, they were doing the same thing. Uh, we took all of our movies out to test. Um, the reason we could was there was no Internet if you took a movie out to test today, you have to be kind of careful where you take it because it'll just be all over the place. If people come to see it, uh, that wasn't a problem then. So the advantage is you get feedback from the audience, both a written feedback and then you hold back a group of maybe 20 people from the audience and ask questions. Um, so a, a lot of what you get from that is intuitive. You know, we'll sit there with Kirk and Gary, the directors and, uh, and you'll, you'll go gee, you know, they're, there was applause after this song. We never expected that. Let's let's add three seconds so that people can applaud if they want to. Yeah, or the, right. we had to wait too long. Uh, uh, you know, when this line happened, the joke didn't work. So let's come up with a new joke or something like that. So you learn those little details. Um, sometimes you learn much bigger details. Like on on Maleficent, the uh, early screenings were really good, but it took about. 30 or 45 minutes for Angelina Jolie to show up. And the audience said, you know, it starts a little slow. That's because Angelina Jolie doesn't show up for 30 or 45 minutes. (laughs) So we cut out the first 30 minutes of the movie. So now in the final movie, when it came out, she's right there in the beginning. So sometimes you learn those somewhat obvious things. Um, the other thing we had to do was kind of train the audience what they were looking at. Cause when we previewed it, the movie was, uh, in black and white or very few color scenes because animated movies are mosaic together. So you might have story sketches, which are, you know, kind of like, uh, comic strips, um, laid out to tell the story. And then a rough animation piece followed by a cleanup piece, followed by a color, followed by another story sketch. So we would inevitably stand up in front and say, let's show you a little progression reel so you know what you're looking at. And we would show that progress and try to educate the audience what they were seeing. Um, and they got it. And uh, the kids, of course, got it right away. And and there was a time when we brought in f- uh, fourth and fifth graders to see the movies, even before the audiences, uh, the kind of general audiences, because they got it, they could look at anything and understand it and give us a good, like super honest assessment of where the movie was. Wow. You know, like uh, like yeah. what's 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 your least favorite character? Oh, it's Gaston. What's your favorite character? Gaston, you know, so, <laughs> you know, it, so they were just like super honest about everything and you want that. Yeah. You don't want people to come in and just say, oh, you're so great, isn't it wonderful? The, I mean, boy, when you're making a movie, it's time to uh, you know be honest about every aspect of it. Well,
0: that's really you cool know. because I mean, the kids they'll tell you the honest truth, you know, whether you like it or not. They'll just go ahead and rip you, or or they'll just congratulate you and just be happy about it. So that's cool. They sure do. They still do. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: So you know, as as movies went on, and we can talk about this at, uh, at subsequent uh, sessions, but as movies went on, we were really careful, and we would actually fly to you know, Phoenix or someplace where there wasn't such a big contingency of Hollywood, uh, families and kids. Cause if you premiere it in the Valley or in Sherman Oaks or something, everybody in that neighborhood works for the movie industry.
2: Yeah.
1: And, uh, so you don't necessarily want that as your audience. You want just, you know, mom and dad and their kids and a genuine, uh, you know, feedback of, of what works. And, and they started to like the movie. We, we showed it in Burbank once, Oh boy. We were, I don't think I've ever told this story. We were going to get Janet Jackson to sing the end credits song. And, um, so we did a screening in Burbank for her with an audience. And, um, we did what we call a Stallone start, which was invented during the Rocky movies where the lights go down in the theater. And then it's dark for a long time. People might think it's a technical problem, but what's happening is Sylvester Stallone or in our case, Janet Jackson is sneaks into the back of the theater and then you play the movie. And before the movie's over, she sneaks out. So it actually went really well. And, uh, and nobody left during the movie. Usually there's kids running out to take a bathroom break or whatever. And uh, in the note session afterwards, Michael Eisner said, God, nobody left. I mean, nobody took a bathroom break. So we decided to put on the poster, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll hold your water.
2: Um, <laughs> I love it. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, we had Mike Gabriel on many months ago, uh, talking, and uh, he he mentioned this a test screening they did for Pocahontas. I think it was in Phoenix too, uh, and uh, uh, the kids got fidgety in the audience when the song "If I Never Knew You" came on. Oh yeah, which was a very romantic moment with Pocahontas and John Smith. And Michael was like, "We got to cut that song. We, you know, the kids are getting restless, and you know, cut the song." And and Mike was holding on for you know trying to keep that song in for you know for as long as he could and then finally after that screening was sort of like okay we got to take it out uh, fortunately, yeah. fortunately, that song made it back in for a tenth anniversary uh, release uh, of Pocahontas right. on, on, on DVD. Now, the same thing kind of happened with uh, Beauty and the Beast and the Human Again sequence. Can, can you talk about that whole oh, Human Again sequence and my God, like, like from the beginning with the movie being made and then it re- being resurrected for the tenth anniversary?
1: I need a cocktail. Um, yeah, it, it's many many songs end up on the floor uh, in the making of a movie. Probably fewer than usual with Howard and Alan, and and sadly Howard was sick during a lot of the making of Beauty and the Beast, and um, and so he had written a spectacular song that had to have been ten minutes long called Human Again, and it was the objects' point of view, and it made sense. It was a good idea to to say you know here's all these objects that are in the chateaus, in, in the castle, that have a rooting interest for this romance to work. Let's hear from them. In the context of a Broadway musical that lasts for two and a half hours, it's perfect. In fact, it made it to the Broadway musical that lasts two and a half hours. But in a 85 or 90-minute animated film, it was too far uh, too long away from bell and the beast and uh, just took too much of the attention away from our protagonists uh for too long so the the song was cut completely i mean we we cut it from 10 minutes down to seven down to five down to three down to like a couple of bars and eventually it went and was replaced by a song called something there uh which howard wrote probably one of the last songs he ever wrote very sweet song between bell and the beast, uh, and kind of a thought song where they're out in the snow singing. And then Hume again went away until, uh, the Broadway show came out and Alan found a way to resurrect it. And, uh, and then eventually we re-recorded it with the original cast, which was a hoot getting Jerry Orbach and, uh, you know, the, all the cast back together, Angela Lansbury, David Stiers. Um, oh, I mean, yeah, we could do a whole hour on the cast. And, um, they came in and recorded it and then we animated it with a lot of the original animators. And that was a kind of a bonus uh, track on one of the uh, Blu-ray releases or DVD releases not too long ago.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually kind of a, a lot of fun to be uh, able to revisit uh, that film uh, 10 yeah. years later. And, and also not only put in the the uh, human again sequence, but also uh, it allowed Kirk and Gary to kind of uh, uh, address their wish list of things they wanted to fix.
1: You know, that's a really good point. The, um, the movie got rushed out so much. There were scenes... It literally scenes like the snowball fight in the something, there song that had no faces on the characters yeah. as we were moving so fast. So I said one day, you know, we're doing this. Why don't we, um, make a list, a shopping list of things that if you could, we could fix if there's time. And, uh, it was one of the kind of happiest shopping lists I've ever made because I think we got to do all of them and, and just, uh, fix it up a little bit without changing anything. We didn't add any, um, you know, scenes from Star Wars or anything. But we, we were able to, um, you know, just kind of fix up things that were broken in the original release. And as an audience, you might not think things were broken, but uh, believe me, things were broken.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, for the artists working on a film, I mean, the, the running joke was always, you you never finished a movie, you just released it. Because if, <laughs> if, if the artists were left to their own devices, they would just continue to noodle and work it and, and, and keep, you know, improving it. Uh, and, and you have to at some point take it away
1: and say this has to go out to the theater. Yeah, they're never finished. They're only abandoned because uh, <laughs> you run out of time and money. I, I wish it was different, but you never reach a day where you go. Now it is perfect. So the audience may see it. Uh, it. And, you know, it's good that you don't do that because it forces you to put your efforts into the places that's important. Yeah, And, uh, you know, if you if you have seen films from directors who maybe did have 10 or 20 years to noodle away on a film, they're not necessarily better. They might be a a personal expression of that person's artistry. But uh, for a film like Beauty, it was better that we had deadlines. Yeah, and, and I I think it, correct me if I'm wrong though.
2: Uh, we we you had the shopping list and we did do fixes on on scenes outside of the human again sequence was which, which was being inserted for the 10th anniversary, but we also did an IMAX version of Beauty and the Beast, and there were additional scenes that had to be fixed for the IMAX
1: screen. Am I am I yeah. right on that? <laughs> That's really true. You know, the the IMAX screen is a different proportion than the regular movie screen. The movie screen is uh, 16 by 9 ratio, roughly. And an IMAX screen is almost square. And so in some cases, we had to expand the painting in the background to add extra um, space above and below. And and then a few years later, we did a 3D version of Beauty and the Beast. So every few years, something sweeps through the industry as a a fresh idea. And um you know, luckily these movies can be adapted. And we did in fact do an IMAX and a three D version and a three D IMAX version of Eating the Beast before we were done. It was pretty awesome, I think. You know, when, when you, when you look back,
2: um, uh, on the, uh, the fact that, that Beauty and the Beast was nominated, uh, in the best picture category, it was the first time any animated film had ever been nominated in the best picture category. What, what was going through your head when that happened? And then what was it like going to the Academy Awards for that?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know that I ever processed or felt like, um, Anything other than kind of humbled by all that stuff. Uh, Hollywood puts so much pressure on pictures to be marketed as best picture and Academy Award winning. And they never have really uh, welcomed animation to that spot. Uh, it's not. Uh, out of any ill will it's just animation was never part of hollywood it was just a kind of side thing in fact a warm-up act for the main feature movies so the shorts and the animation industry grows out of the stand-up comedian that used to warm up the audience before the main feature um so that's why animation's been slow to the academy awards um It was a huge effort and a huge um, acknowledgement to have Beauty and the Beast accepted. Uh, I wore a clean suit that night. Um, I I went to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which is where the Academy Awards were at the time, and sat down in the seventh row, you know, behind Sylvester Stallone, behind... uh, you know, Robert De Niro and things. And the main thing that goes through your head is what am I doing here? I didn't go to school to be part of this. I am fortunate and blessed to be part of it, but um, it's just odd because it's such a different industry than uh, the live action business. So I, I, I don't know. I would like to think the live action business has really welcomed animation because today it is the most lucrative hugely financially successful part of the movie business times 10 and,
2: and, and then anim- it
1: wasn't yeah but animation i mean is part
2: of just about every big tentpole live action film that goes out there now yeah, i mean if you look at any of those marvel films i mean they're, they're it's like you know a, a
1: good percentage of uh, of those actors are actually animation. Absolutely. Space Jam. Uh, it's, uh, you know, so many films like that are animation. So it's a boom time today that comes in part from um, from that era when Beauty and those movies were starting to uh, blaze a path. But, you know, blaze a path uh, that had, again, kind of followed the lead of some of the great characters that worked with Walt Disney a long time ago. Now, were you outraged that Beauty did not win the uh, Best Picture that year? <laughs> Uh, Here's a really weird thing. I got a call from, I think it was from Michael Eisner. He said, if it wins, and you go up, if it wins, could you please say the following? Um, Thank you to the Academy. And now I'm going to Disneyland. (laughs) I said, Michael, <laughs> I have never told anyone this. I'm giving this to the uh, <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast live here. It's a Skull Rock Podcast exclusive. exclusive. <laughs> yeah, and he's, you <laughs> he should put some echo on the word exclusive. I will. <laughs> I will at post. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and and I said, Michael, I can't. I can't do that. And uh, he said, No, no it's just an easy thing. And and maybe we'll get, we'll give some money to the, the charity of your choice if you decide to do that. Well, no pressure. Here's the guy who's the chairman of the corporation asking you to put in a commercial for Disneyland uh, in front of several million people that are watching the broadcast. Uh, so uh, a small part of me is relieved we didn't win because I wouldn't know what to do with that piece of information. Um, but I, I don't know. I had no expectation going into the evening. I think the, the, the nomination was unbelievable. Um and it's hard to wrangle Academy voters to line up on any particular film, much less an animated film. Uh, I've been a member of the Academy for 30 years and, and adore what the Academy does. Uh, but, you know, but it's always a little bit of a work in progress. So not disappointed at all. Happy we were invited to the party. Uh, literally invited to the party because we went to the uh, you know Golden Globes. We got a Golden Globe Award, yeah. which I think I have. Like right behind, you're not, you have no camera here, but I think uh, I have it right behind my desk. Well,
2: we're recording this, but uh, only, Are you? Uh, only the three of us will see it. Look at that. Okay, there's well, a, There's
1: right. a golden globe. It is the Beauty and the Beast golden globe. So um, I keep it in my trousers, actually, just in case I'm asked to pull it out. Um, <laughs> like like the Spinal Tap episode, it was, right? <laughs> it, it's, yeah. What, what's funny is when we were at the uh, New York Film Festival, we were at the uh, Alice Tully Hall screening to a penthouse. house standing ovations, all that kind of stuff. Beforehand, we were running around backstage, getting ready to go on and introduce the film. And Gary Trousdale, the director, turns around and says, this is totally Spinal Tap. And it was, because here's three guys from California at Lincoln Center, you know, and and running around with their cartoon, getting ready to show it to a celebrity-filled audience, including, you know, people like Don Johnson. And so um, it, it, it was... It, It's just odd, you know, I I think to a group of people who don't aspire to the celebrity and glitter of the Kardashian world, um, to be in that world is... Fascinating, and as an observer in that world, it's spectacular. um But I'm sure glad to get get back to Burbank. It, it, it's a fish out of water uh, type of totally. moment.
2: Yeah, it totally yeah. is for everybody. It, now, 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 Beauty was nominated, and this is when the Best Picture category was only five nominations. Yeah, yeah, right? and one of them oh, yeah. is yeah. One of them was was Beauty and the Beast. What
1: do you remember? What the other movies were, or do you remember which one won against? Oh, I don't, and I I won't embarrass myself by googling them. Silence of the Lambs won because it it was a great movie. Let's face yeah. it. Sure. Um, so no problem there, but um, I don't remember the other nominees. Yeah, I, I hardly I hardly remember no. the best picture nominee from last year. They didn't win. Um, they didn't win. We why would we remember them? They didn't win. They didn't. But you know, Alan, <laughs> Alan and Howard won for their score. Yes. Uh, as they did for Little Mermaid. And they won for Howard, a song, didn't they? They did. Yeah. So so here uh, and, and you go. Howard,
0: yeah. So here you go. You got Bugsy, JFK, Prince of Tides, Beauty, and Silence of the Lambs that won. Wow. Those, those are, are some. Those
1: are some heavy, some heavy hitter
0: fim, films, right?
1: Yeah. Now. Yeah. 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 I remember when they announced the, uh, nominees, which they did at five or six in the morning. So mm-hmm. that the East coast could have it. Um, I got up early and made a coffee and sat there and watched TV. And, um, when we heard our name announced, it, I, I, I squealed like, uh, there was no tomorrow because it, it just was so amazing. And then the phone started to ring, um, and, and I answered and said, hi, and, and hi, it's uh, Michael Eisner. Just want to say congratulations. Okay. And then the phone will ring in again. Hi, it's Roy Disney. Just want to say congratulations. And so these guys who were our uh, cold hearted executives, so to speak were actually really warm hearted about uh, congratulating us and uh, kind of offering their uh, thanks to all of us who uh, worked on that movie. Um, and that was a great experience too. Just that kind of inclusion that they had for us. Awesome. Uh- that, that is so fantastic um when when you
2: look back i mean this is the thirtieth anniversary of beauty and the beast this year uh when when you look back i mean what what what's the legacy of that movie what do you what do you think in terms of you know a hundred years from now somebody's gonna look at that movie and be talking about it in a film school maybe
1: wow um i, I think it's storytelling you know there's there may be better animation in other movies, for sure. There may be better, um, you know, what have you. But I think the storytelling in the context of a musical is really great in that movie. And, um, it, you know, the, the Library of Congress chose it to be part of their forever collection, along with Roger Rabbit. And, um, and and so that's really humbling when that happens. But I think it's because of that. So I can really point to Howard Ashman, really point to Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, and and all those story guys and girls who went on to direct uh, because the storytelling in that movie same with little mermaid um is exquisite and it it just has to do with great structure great progression of characters um strong emotional involvement in the characters and what they want in life and then howard was a stickler for putting the plot in the songs uh you know if, if ever there was a song that was just entertainment or kind of you stop for an FM radio song or something. He hated it. And, uh, rightly so. So every song and every moment in his films and his work, uh, is plot driven and, and beautifully. So just examine the lyrics sometimes for the opening bell number. And, uh, every line has, you know, in, in what might've been a 10 minute opening number in about four minutes, you meet the lead character. You see, she's an outsider. She lives on the outside of town. You meet Gaston, the villain, his sidekick, Fou. You meet the different people in town that are going to be her antagonists all in the course of this little uh, opening number.
0: Beautiful, so I, I think all those things, opening,
1: yeah. beautiful operetta. Um, so all yeah. those things I think add up to something that's uh, hopefully memorable. Um, are there any uh,
2: particular moments or, or or funny stories that pop to you you know it, it, pop in mind when you think of Beauty and the Beast and just the overall production of it was there was there any one or two things that just like were insane or you know crazy funny that well, jumped we often to mind
1: did, we did a lot of uh, parties just to blow off steam and um one of the best ones is is i don't remember who it was maybe you do had a massive slingshot, the kind that it's held by two people and then the center is pulled back by a third person. And we had leftover donuts from the morning uh, and we we went outside and and saw how far we could hurl our long johns into the neighbor's yard. Um, so that was one nice e- nice event. Uh, we had an opera contest, uh, Ji Bodo, who if you may remember. Yes, um,
2: yes, yeah.
1: Brilliant animator on the beast. Uh, would frequently stand on um, uh, his desk and and sing a indeterminate opera of indeterminate length. And uh, many people would join in. And so that was always a, a happy time. Um, it, it, you know, So a lot of our, our kind of parties and things like that were really just meant to blow off steam. Um, Gary, uh, the director, had a paintball uh, gun he would occasionally bring inside. Uh, and I'll just stop that story there. Um, so, it, it, you know, we were fairly young compared to uh, most studios and um, and had a, a good time because there was a lot of pressure during the making of the movie also. And there were, uh, you know, we, we went up to upstate New York to work with Howard Ashman because he was not feeling well. Uh, we thought it was because he was just being a diva because he won an Oscar on Little Mermaid. But... We later found out it's because he uh, was HIV positive. Um, so that was a mixed bag. It was freezing cold in the winter. We flew into New York and rented some cars and drove up to the beautiful Residence Inn in Fishkill, New York. Oh, yes, I, I know um, Fishkill. It's outside of Albany. It is outside of Albany, and it's yeah. uh, it's lovely on the Hudson. It's the Sullivan and, uh,
2: Sullivan Sullivan County, I believe, is where yes. Fishkill is. It's and it's it's sort of the the, the Catskills. You know, it you, is, you start it to is. get into the
1: Catskills. And, and Howard lived in Cold Spring uh, on the Hudson. It, and um, I rented a conference room there at the hotel, just the kind of conference room that maybe one would sell boilers at. Um, <laughs> and I got, I got a uh, uh, rented piano for Alan. And Howard would come in and bring donuts, which is kind of a recurring theme on this movie. And uh, we would work all day. And, um, you know, kind of slog out these songs. And so that that short time up in Fishkill was really uh, important important to the movie because we had just switched directors. The whole new team was on. The songs were starting to come through. And, boy, when you get a song on, on an audio tape from Ashman and Mencken, it's like the best day in your life. You know, you, you get a song like Be Our Guest or... Uh, you know, Bell or something. It's just stunning. Um, so that's when the, the, the movie just starts to rise musically. And then you have this great cast of Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach and these Broadway superstars that starts to elevate the movie. Then you start to see great work by Mark Henn or James Baxter or, uh, you know, Lorna Cook or, or Glenn Keane, Andrea Deja. I, I try to, um, like buy things for the animators to keep them motivated. Like I bought a full stuffed taxidermy bison head for Glenn Keane. Um, uh, just as inspiration for the bulk of the beast's head. Yeah. Um, and I also got a uh, muscle and fitness magazine subscriptions for Andreas Deja because he was doing guest on. Um, so my expense reports were always uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It helped, you know, because you could go into Glenn's room and you could see this bison. You know, I I would never do that today. It was it's kind of politically incorrect, but it would give you a sense of the weight of it all. Or or we would set up for Glenn to go to the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena and see um, you know, the, the Burgers of Calais, that amazing Rodin sculpture, mm-hmm. which a lot of his gestures and, and, um, kind of forms that he used in the transformation of the beast are based on that. So, you know, as a producer, you're trying to hire the best people you can and, and stay out of their way and do exactly what they tell you to do and try to cheerlead and, and, and put them in the path of inspiring yeah. things. And, it- um,
2: you,
1: you know, I I was gonna uh, just
2: uh, while you were ta- telling that story, I, I I couldn't help but think that during that period, that sort of Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast period, there really was this transition happening of all those new executives that were coming in. Like they were they were getting comfortable and used to the. Um, idiosyncratic uh, ways of the animation department and the (laughs) sort of the craziness that that went on in the animation department, wouldn't you say? I mean, yeah, it it seemed that way to me that that I think initially people like Peter and Kathleen were were like didn't know what to make of uh, some of the folks.
1: Yeah, it could be. But they, I think, adapted pretty quickly because it, being from theater, they had seen pretty much everything, I think. And, yeah. Um, and we're really, you know, good in the theater. I mean, Tom Schumacher and Peter ran the Olympic Arts Festival uh, in part when it was in Los Angeles for the Olympics in 84. Was that? Yeah. 84 um, Olympics. Yeah. So, you know, experienced guys uh, and and that combination of people from theater and the animation people really helped along with Roy Disney. And it would be remiss if we didn't talk about Roy a little bit because he was a good friend and a um, for both of us. And. And a, uh, a a real um, oh kind of uh, ran interference for us when we needed that kicked our butts when we needed that. Um, he was Soft-scope the god. And- he was, he was the godfather of um, uh,
2: of the animation department. He he really yeah. was because because I think when the new management came in I I, I really believe they were, were going to shut down animation they they didn't mm-hmm. understand it they they were looking at the Black Cauldron uh, and they, you know which wasn't in, in their eyes a great movie uh, and uh, they were going to close down the animation department and it really was Roy that stepped in and said no the, this is the cornerstone of the company if animation is is well the company is going to
1: do well. Yeah, that was, that was absolutely the feeling back then. And hopefully still now, I mean, uh, when something like frozen takes off at the box office, it, it bodes well for the whole company. Yeah. Um, so I, I, Roy really was that to all of us and, um, y- you know, was a defender when we needed it, uh, and then had aspirations of his own and that's where Fantasia 2000 grew out of. Um, but I think he was able to, when I did waking, sleeping beauty, the documentary that's now on Disney plus, um, I asked Jeffrey about that time. And he said, you know, we went and saw the pitch for Great Mouse Detective. We went through storyboard after storyboard for about two or three hours. And then afterwards, we were walking away. And Michael and I just said, did any of that make sense? He said, no. So, well, we got like 130 people working on it. I guess we should keep going. Yeah, I guess we should. <laughs> so it, it was that that sense that, you know, maybe we don't know what we're talking about. Liet, Roy brought us into the company. Let's give this over to Roy. And it'll sort itself out. And thank God it did
2: wow you know something i we're we're bumping up on an hour and 15 minutes and so i'm going to uh say uh that we should wrap up in a few moments Al, John, do we have any questions on beauty
0: and the beast uh hanging in the wings gosh you know uh w- we have tons of questions, but I know once again uh, we got to talk about the cast. We have to talk more about the music. Obviously, uh, the companion to this dawn is the film that uh, you directed. I mean, we feel I feel, and we talked about this too, Dave. Is that Howard is just a great documentary right and yes just talking about we, the have pl- we
2: we have shamelessly plugged uh <laughs> howard don, don hans documentary numerous times on the skull rock podcast absolutely, uh,
0: <laughs> absolutely. and you know it's yeah. just an interesting thing though you know you have you know yourself with your musical background being a percussionist and then moving your way i mean what is it about the producing aspect because you produce so much uh, prolific work uh, over the course of your career. What is it about producing that you love so much?
1: Um, I love the artists, you know, full stop. I think I, as I look back on those movies, I, I, yes, I remember the movies and and I'm proud of them, but I really remember the people. Um, They are your um, band of brothers and sisters. And that's what I remember. And, to be able to work with them and um, support them and cheerlead with them and you know sometimes a producer is a, a therapist and sometimes a coach and you know whatever it takes to get it done but uh that's what i remember and that's what i love and i'm not saying it's easy all the time it's it's uh almost never easy but i love uh wrangling a group of people and then uh, serving them to try to create a, a a project that together we can do something that no one of us individually could have ever done. Exactly. Yeah.
2: You know, I, I was going to just ask the ask this question uh, because it, it, I, I kind of know the answers to it. But um, when when you're when you are the producer, you're running interference uh, and you're taking some body blows behind the scenes that the crew never knows about. Am I, am I, and I am loving it? No, but I mean, am I correct on that though, Don? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're shielding the crew from some pretty
1: horrendous things that go on during production. Yeah. I, I learned fast that it wasn't all about managing downward. Like you're not the boss and you're managing all these people. I never thought of myself that way. You're managing upwards and downwards. So upwards is managing expectations, setting up executives for when they come into the room, this, this, and this will happen. I mean, we were really good at that. We would say, uh, Roy, you're coming into the room, and we think this is broken. If you agree, we need you to say that. Um, you know, we we would really set up the executives, or to say there's a contentious issue coming up with this person. Just a heads up before you walk into the room, because nobody likes to be blindsided. It's the same though with all the artists working on the movie. You're walking in, and you're you need to tell the artists. You know, this executive really hates this sequence. You better come in loaded for bear to be able to defend that sequence and tell everybody why you think it's important. That's why people like Glenn Keane went to bat for part of your world and said, you know, you have to keep this in the movie. It's about Ariel's character. Um, So those are the kinds of things the producer does. You try to tee up everybody for not the perfect conversation all the time, because it never is, but to manage expectations. And then I, I, I always like to take kind of a servant attitude, meaning, um, get ahead of people and give them a, um, what they need to get the job done and, and beyond in an unexpected way, that might be a new tool that might be technology that might be ambition for creating an animated ballroom in beauty and beauty of the beast or something like that. Uh, encouraging the directors to take risks, uh, encouraging people not to edit themselves too prematurely in the process or settle for something that's second best when they really need to hang in there and go for a better result all that stuff is is good producing and the people I look up to as producers were always creative producers like Jim Henson and um, uh, Walt Disney and those guys had a creative um, way of rallying people around a project that I really admired
2: Mm. wow That's fantastic. I mean, it's so true, though. I mean, it's amazing. And in particular, you make it look effortless. Uh, I mean, it really does look effortlessly done, uh, having been on many pictures with you over the years.
1: Well, that's years of therapy and pharmaceuticals. I think, really, (laughs) that's. No, I'm just kidding. I I genuinely love these people. You know, I have no problem saying that um, because what they do is absolutely incredible. It's like bumblebee flight. It's it's incredible. So uh, to be able to support that kind of talent is uh, a privilege for me. Well,
2: there we have it. Don Hahn, producer of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Taking body blows backstage for you as an audience. (laughs) That's right. Um, Well, I'm going to say we're going to wrap up this segment because we're fortunate that, as I said earlier, Don had brought his camping gear and he set up shop in our green room. And we will pull him out next week for uh, another conversation on the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, Do you say Notre Dame or Notre Dame? Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yes. Notre Dame is in, uh, in is it uh, Indiana Indianapolis? Uh, Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Always good yeah. football team. The, the Hunchback of the Notre Dame football team. No, yeah. um, not the Fighting Irish. Yeah. So ne- next week we'll be talking about ne- next week we're going to talk Hunchback, and the week after Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And there's so much wow. to talk about. I mean, uh, this is this was a great conversation, Don.
1: And I want to thanks, guys. It I, I, it's fantastic. Thank you for inviting me i just uh
0: appreciate it plus we gotta plus we have to you know maybe the next session don will put the the pringles down and then uh, you know pick up the snare drum and then do a little revelry for us that would be amazing
1: (sighs) there we go i would be happy to do anything like that uh, (laughs) within the laws of the state of california uh yeah happy to
2: excellent all right don we'll see you uh next week uh for the hunchback uh conversation thank you so much
1: Thanks,
0: guys. You know, I loved having Don on the show to talk about his projects, but it was so cool to see that the 30th anniversary on ABC and see a young Don Han and all of you guys being so young.
2: (laughs) I know it's really something else. And I, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, that uh, episode from the vault from the skull rock uh, podcast vault and uh, wishing you all a happy new year. Uh, Next week uh, we're going to have a, uh, another vault show. So I hope you tune in
0: and enjoy. And do us a favor When you're out there partying when you're out there please be safe and always use a designated driver and we want to see you again in the new year take care i'm al john go co-host of the disney list podcast as heard on sorcerer radio as well as skull rock podcast here with my wife Kristen. hello hello you are an earmarked agent who books disney travel vacations for people all the time Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves.
3: Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times, so they've got that knowledge at their hand, as well as it saves them time and money.
0: Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney?
3: They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, co host of Dining at Disney podcast. Every week, I chat about dining at Disneyland and Walt Disney World Resort and Disney Cruise Line with my fellow foodie, Bubba. We also feature restaurants and food reviews, information to help you plan your dining, Disney food news, recipes, and a monthly panel discussion. Visit DiningAtDisney.com and subscribe to Dining at Disney Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. Dining at Disney Podcast, the happiest plate on earth.